Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 3-259. I think you'll understand that today's show is going to be a little bit different. I had already interviewed Dave McGilvery about the Boston Marathon last week before the race, and I think it's appropriate to air that today. I also have written and recorded my race story for you. It was a hard thing for me, but I thought I owed it to you. Now, this is my story. It's petty and it's incomparable to the horrors that others saw and experienced and are still experiencing as I record this, but it's it's all I have for you. So you'll have to bear with me as I struggle through it and take it for what it is. I need to thank everyone who reached out to me on Monday to make sure I was okay. Some of you who I have never heard from before, what's up with that? You know, I won't bite you. I got some messages like, hey, I've been listening to you for three years, and I hope you're okay. (laughs) You know, three years qualifies as common law marriage in Massachusetts, so I'm entitled to half your stuff now. And the lawyers from the Run Run Live corporate legal team will be in contact. Seriously, folks, you're going to get a lot of this type of stuff coming at you from people like me, so try to keep your eyes on the prize, and remember that I'm going to be okay, you're going to be okay, and together we're going to run towards a brighter future. And now for today's featured interview. All right, my friend. Yes, sir. Busy week for you. Um, yeah, I, I, my little strategy and scheme is always to pretend an event is like a couple of weeks before it actually is so that you get the proverbial hay in the barn and then you spend the last couple of weeks just sort of preventing fires or, God forbid, putting out some fires. But um, yeah, exactly. uh, things, are pretty, things are pretty calm right now. Exactly. We've got no, no blizzard bearing down on us. No uh, 90 degree weather, so it looks good. Yeah, we just came from our final public safety meeting at the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency in the bunker there in Framingham, and got the National Weather Service to give us the the real update. And um, things are looking looking pretty good right now in terms of uh, what is expected for Monday. Not not too strong of a wind factor. Um, and temperatures in the mid 40s in the early morning, and then. Um, you know, going up to the 50s and and maybe into the 60s, but nothing that seems to be of a critical nature at this point in time. So, so we deserve this one after last year. <laughs> yeah, well, you know how it is. It goes in cycles, right? Yep. Yep. So, that's okay. I, I think um, one of the things one of the things that uh, commends you guys and your organization is you know how smoothly last year went off, given the you know the the weather. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I think that uh, it was really a team effort by a number of constituencies. One is certainly the management team um, really stepped up. You know, we ramped up on everything. Uh, medical um, professionals were obviously outstanding in how they dealt with uh, the conditions. Uh, the uh, fire departments and police departments along the route came out and, you know, set up um know, tents, spray tents, and things of that nature. So, yeah, the, the management side of it was, was stellar. The athletes themselves, um, it all comes down to personal responsibility. And we did a lot of communication prior to the race, you know, again, making people aware of the conditions and that they really need to heed that, that we're serious about this and that they'll have to, you know, look at some other future year as a potential PI year, but not that particular year and pull back on the throttle and just sort of, conquer the mountain, say you survived the hottest year in the history of the race per se throughout the course, the entire course, and and just get to the finish line safe, and they did. And then the spectators along the course, I mean, they were the unsung heroes because, as you know, later on at night I run and I saw the remnants of that where there was, you know, a fair amount of trash on the on the route, and it wasn't the trash that was caused by our official water stations. It was the residents who had um, come out and handed out water bottles, handed out popsicles, ice, just, just everything. To, so it was one constant, you know, aid station for 26 miles, it seemed like. And we're very fortunate that our race goes through a lot of residential communities where people can just step outside their front, front door and, and support the runners with hoses and everything else. So um, yeah. all in all, you know, we, it worked out all right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the big differences about Boston is that these are multi-generational uh, participants in the communities you run through, and it's it's a day on their calendar, and they're like professional spectators. You know, what's interesting is that our fans, our spectators are as experienced as our runners are, you know, exactly. so it's kind of an interesting dynamic, whereas you don't find that everywhere. So they know what to do, when to do it, what to say, what not to say, all of that. So it really, you know, they're an extension of the overall management of the race. Yeah, and I was out in the course last year, and the, and it's a special set of athletes, too. It's a more mature and experienced set of athletes because nobody was, you know, nobody was attacking the course. You know, everybody had, had come to grips with the, the facts and said, okay, we're just going to, we're going to jog this one. So I think that says something about the participants as well. Yeah, without a doubt, I mean, what was interesting is that <clears throat> when we got their forecast, we knew it was going to be hot at the start and hot at the finish and hot along the course. It wasn't like in 76 when Jack Fultz won the, the, the run for the hoses. It was really hot in Hopkinton, but as you ran east, it got cooler and cooler. I mean, not real cool, but cooler. And when he finished, it was in the mid to low 80s, whereas when he started, it was in the mid to high 90s. Whereas last year, it was a constant heat throughout the entire 26 miles. So it yeah. made for a big difference, you know. So people yeah. really knew that going in and said, I'm going to crash and burn unless I back off. And they and they did and hydrate well. So um, all in all, yeah. like I said, it yeah. went pretty well. Yeah, I remember that from 2004 as well because the, the start yeah. time was later. When you came off the back of the hills, it actually <clears> dropped a couple degrees and you got a little bit of a, yeah. a cooling headwind. At that point, it was yep. too late, but, you know. So that was last year. What's new for this year? Again, we were responding to last year, so we were we've been working diligently on 
you know, if this ever happened again, how can we even be more prepared? So a lot of our preparation over the last year has been for, you know, weather conditions that, thank goodness, we don't sense that we're going to have to experience, but, you know, all those plans are in the queue. And so as a result, there's not going to be a lot of change in the race itself because we've been spending so much time on plan B and C and not as much on A. So I think I think the runners are going to pretty much see what they have seen in the last few years. I mean, everything at the start is pretty much the same, the village, the lineup, the corrals, the waves, the start time, the field size, going down course, again, not not a whole lot different, you know, everything, water stations, fluid stations, medical stations, <clears throat> you know, all of that's the same. And generally speaking, the same thing at the, at the finish. So if something worked for you in the past, you know, don't change it because the way it's all set up is pretty much the same as they have, uh, they have known it to be. Yeah. Well, this is a first time year for me because I'm, uh, I don't have a qualifying time. So I'm back in the, in the back of the, yep. uh, back of the pack, uh, due to some injuries. <clears throat> I'm running for uh, Rick and Dick. Oh, good. And, yeah, uh, it's going to be interesting to me to see how the how the start is, you know, because on yeah. paper, if you look at my pace and where I am, I'm you know ten, twelve thousand people back from where yeah. I should be slotted, right? Capable, so what you're capable of running? Yeah. Well, it's a tough credundum because um, obviously everyone who's qualified is seated based on their qualifying time. So you would like to think that the person standing next to you is of equal and similar ability level. So when, you know, the, the gunfires, you know, you all take off at the, basically the same pace, but then right. you look at it, those who are running. Great. For, yeah. It works great. And those I mean, who are, if you're, those if who are running for charity, it's a mix and match of all different ability levels. So being back there in as much as, you know, we're glad to be able to give the opportunity to people who didn't qualify the, you know, the chance to run. Um, you know, it's tough to see them within the qualifiers because is that is that parity is that is that fair based on the fact right. that these people qualified and these people didn't. So, but it all comes out in the wash. I mean, I'm I'm sure you'll you'll figure it out. You'll know going in what the expectation is, and you know you'll you'll pace yourself accordingly. Sometimes, Chris, you know, those of us who have run this race, not a pretty pretty quick clip, you know, we might, we might go out too fast. We're anxious. We're really fit. We're, we're peaked in performance and we want to go out and, uh, you know, take advantage of the gravity and downhill in the early starts, but then we pay for it later. Whereas if you are now in- integrated with slower people, you can't run fast and at a certain pace. Maybe that is going to be a savior and it's going to force you to slow down in the early stages. And then when it spreads out, you're going to pick it up and you run negative splits and not have that slow of a time based on where you started. Yeah, you're absolutely right. My best races at Boston have been when I've gone in sort of afraid of my fitness and mm-hmm. and really held back in the first 15 miles um, right. and, and negative splitted them. I mean, not my fastest races, but certainly my most enjoyable and most effective races. Sure. I hear you. Yep. Yeah. You know, it looks like you got a pretty good field coming this year. What's the elite community like? I mean, do, do all these guys pal around together, or is it like any other uh, community where you get some some great people and some some interesting people? I think I, I don't handle the uh, elite field. John Hancock does that. So, in many respects, to me, you know, the people in this race are faceless. I, I treat them all the same, even though there are top-notch elite runners, and certainly they get certain privileges and like special fluid stations on the course and transportation out to the start and a, a special holding area indoors and all those kinds of things. For the most part, we like to treat 
the slowest runner is, you know, on almost an equal level as the fastest runner, you know. So for me, I'm, I'm excited about the field that Hancock has put together and the BAA has put together. I mean, the initial, you know, sort of buzz was all the Americans, you know, we, we were hoping to get all the top three male and female who ran in London to run. And, and, and we had five of the six. Desiree was injured at the time, so she couldn't commit to Boston, but we had five of the six. <clears throat> and then uh, we heard, you know, Ryan Hall's hamstrings were still bothering him. So he, he uh, dropped from the field a couple of months ago. And then just recently Meg Kosleski with his calf problem just dropped. So we're down to, you know, for the most part, Abdi running for the men and uh, Shalane and, and Kara Goucher um, and Shalane Flanagan running for the women. So I think a lot of the focus for a lot of people, at least, you know, running aficionados around here are going to be on the women's race and yeah. and rooting for Kara and Shalane to see if they can finally become the first Americans since Lisa Weidenbach and Greg Meyer to, to pull off a win. Yeah, I was I was trying to remember who it was in 1985 for the women. At the time, it was Lisa Weidenbach, and now it's Lisa Rainsberger. But yeah, yeah, because yeah, it wasn't Joan. Joan was done by then. No, right. So yep. So yeah, all right. That's great stuff. So you know, you've been doing this for a long time. What do you think when people think about what you do in the race? What do you think the biggest misperceptions are? I would suppose just sort of a lack of. Not appreciation, because I think people appreciate it. They just don't understand the intricacies of all that goes on behind the scenes. I mean, face value, it's a road race. You know, so how yeah. difficult can that be? Line them up, you know, fire a gun, off they go, cross the finish line, you know, give them a bowl of beast stool or whatever, and, and they go home. And that's the end of that. You know, how difficult is that? But it's so much more than that. <clears throat> and it's so many people in a very tight, venue. Um, you know, again, we have no more real estate today to handle 27,000 people than they had a hundred years ago when they had 200 people. And so there's a lot of moving parts, um, not a lot of room for error. Um, the timeline is very, very tight. Um, so, you know, we have to be on our game minute by minute, second by second, because, um, there's a trickle down effect. If something goes awry, then what's following it is going to be out of sync. And, you know, a lot of it can fall apart at the scenes. So um, I don't know that there's an understanding on the outside looking in for that kind of dynamic that goes on. And why should there be? I don't know the dynamic of brain surgery, you know, but I know it's intricate, but that's about it. But if I stood next to a surgeon and watched him do what he does or she does what she does, I would have more of an appreciation for it. And so, I suppose to answer your question, that's probably the thing that, you know, strikes me the most. Is that people just don't realize the magnitude, the scale, and the uh, intricacy yeah. of what's going on. Yeah. Exactly. When you look at this thing, and you've dealt with a lot of people over the years now, you know, it's been years and years and years. What uh, What have you learned about people? What's universal in this? Um, I think for us here at Boston, more than any other race I direct. It's probably an expectation of a standard second to none. Um, they don't take it for granted. Um, for them, they expect excellence. I like to think we deliver bar, it seems, gets raised every year. And so we not only have to do what we did before at the level we did, but we have to do even more and do it even better. 
And it's almost like running in a race. If you can run 210 for the marathon to run 208. It's only two minutes faster, but that's a top two minutes in that world. Whereas if you run four hours to run 358, you only have to knock off two minutes. But, you know, that's not asking a lot. Same with us. Um, we've got this thing so fine-tuned to make it better. Um, we really have to work hard at making certain aspects of this better. One of the, the privileges and the advantages of working in this race versus others that I do, most others are, you know, second year, third year, fourth year, fifth year. So you're still doing the basics then and still learning the basics. Well, for us, not to stand on our heels, but the basics are pretty much done. This thing doesn't change very much from year to year. It affords us the opportunity to put aspects of this event under a microscope and really drill down into the weeds and really improve upon areas that nobody else has the, you know, um, opportunity and chance to to do that because they're so busy doing the basics. So that's what I enjoy most about this race is I could take a lead vehicle program or take a piece of the technology of the event or look at certain aspects of the medical side of things or the public safety side of things or whatever it might be, and say, how can we make this even better? And because we have the time and the resources and the experience to do that. So it seems like you you personally, this is something that really fits your personality type and your management style. So does this, you know, how do you look at this personally? Does it, does it, how does it line up with your personal mission, so to speak? Well, I'm a stickler for detail. You know, I, I try to leave no stone left unturned. I try to visualize an event before it actually happens and go through all the different types of scenarios that we may be confronted with as we get closer and closer to the event. Event management turns into crisis management. You need to make yourself available to take care of the things that might pop up unexpectedly, whereas if you're busy, busy, busy doing the things you could have done yesterday or the day before or the week before, you don't have time to deal with these crises that could in the end, you know, crumble you, you know, these are some of the things that I, I try to focus on. Again, I, I, you know, as a, as a race director, I mean, I always sort of tongue in cheek say I'm more like a conductor, not a director. I have a, an orchestra of people, experts in various aspects and various disciplines of this, of this industry, you know, whether it's, you know, medical or, you know, technology or registration or volunteer or start or course or finish. And when, I, when my role basically is to keep it all together, the needle and the thread, you know, the glue that try to keep it together, communicate sure. with everyone so that it's, you know, at the end of the day, whatever we produce, it's all, it's like a sheet of music and it's all harmonious. And sort of that's what I, you know, and always trying to motivate people and inspire people to, you know, give it their all and maintain a level of passion for what they do. Yeah, so it sounds like they're, you know, the keys here are to get as much of the planning done as possible in as much detail as possible, you know, leading up mm-hmm. to the event. Yeah. And 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 then to uh surround yourself with people who know what they're doing and enable them to do the right thing and then lead exactly. it. So it's exactly. like any other company, yeah. right? Keys to success. Yeah. yeah. You know, a little motto I have is yeah, I can be somewhat of a pest where um, I give people enough rope to get the job done and try not to micromanage them. But at the same time, I want evidence that the job is done. So I can be a pest with follow-up, follow-up, follow-up to ensure that you, know, you need to prove to me that, that you're, you're quote-unquote 
all set that you have done the job because you're a, a cog in the wheel and it could be, you know, every cog is as important as the one next to it. And if there's a little glitch in yours, we might not be able to bridge that gap and everything falls apart. So there's no one that's less or more important than anyone else when they're part of the entire equation. You know, if you look back at this, has this transformed you? No, excuse me. I wouldn't say it's transformed me. I think I've always been this way. You know, certainly this event, you know, is is the highlight of, of my event portfolio for the year. Interestingly, it's like almost the first one. I have like 20 more events to manage this year. And this was, this, this one kicks off the whole year for me, but it, it's arguably, you know, the one that means the most uh, near and dear, obviously having run it a bunch of times before getting the role of directing it and knowing what this event means to so many people around, not just the country, but around the world. It's a, bucket list event. It's a, you know, this is the World Series. This is the Super Bowl for for runners, you know, who are competitive and who said, you know, that's my goal in life is to qualify and run in the Boston Marathon. So to know that you're, you know, again, we're, we're caretakers. This event was here way before I was born and it'll be around way after I'm gone. I'm just taking care of it for a few years. But with that is a responsibility and an obligation to sort of take it seriously and deliver the best possible experience for those who really look at this as being, you know, a life-changing experience for them. Yep, yep. So you're, we're, we're just passing through, and we're taking care of a grand old lady here. Yeah. So that's great. So how do you find the time to do all this, Dave? Any secrets? Well, I think sleep's overrated. Um, <laughs> you know. Oh, what are those guys? Yeah, it's a function of just being very organized and multitasking and taking advantage of every second of the day and, you know, planning ahead. You know, I have five kids, so it's not like I got a lot of free time in my hands. I have higher priorities and greater obligations than, than this. I always put my family first, but at the same time, they recognize that this is important and I need to get the job done and in order to, you know, bring home the bacon, if you will. So it's a delicate balance of, you know, family, business, and then as important, you know, is an unselfishly taking care of oneself because if I let myself go because I don't have time to train or take care of myself, then I'm going to become a burden to other people. I may not be able to take care of the family and not be able to do the job. So I, I need to be vigilant in making sure I leave space and time to, you know, be healthy and be fit. So that I can I can keep the pace. I mean, the pace. I, I must admit, the pace is somewhat relentless, but that's what I like. I like I like just go go go. Um, I'm not a lie on the beach and read a book kind of guy. Um, I feel like there's only so much time, and you know, it's interesting. People say, "Well, when do you have time to relax?" Well, I I enjoy so much what I do. I am relaxed when I'm doing it. And this right. is what I do to relax. When I go lie on the beach or by a pool, I get fidgety. And if, if anything, it's it, I'm not relaxing. I'm doing just the opposite. I'm thinking of all the things I could be doing other than just lying there, you know? So uh, maybe I'm I'm different than most, but, you know, there's no right or wrong. It's just personality traits. Yep. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to, to doing okay. that thing that you do. And thanks for okay, the time, sir. all right? All right. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Good luck. I'm on big. Bye-bye. 
On Tuesday afternoon, I kept breaking down into sobbing fits while I'm reading the news feeds online. And it's, and it's not the horrific events that, that are causing me to do this thing that I have no knack for. It's the people I know who are telling these stories. These are my people. This is my community. And now these things are part of my story. And this thing hit my home, my house, my friends. And I'm overwhelmed by emotion, which is something else I have little skill at and don't really know how to rationalize. But it's going to be okay. I'm okay. You will be okay. Our community and our friends are going to be okay. We are strong. We know we are strong. We don't take suffering lightly, but it doesn't scare us. And we are endurance athletes. We endure. That's what we do. It is our strength and our gift to the world. We set an example of endurance. And we will keep moving forward because that's what we do. We will grab for that next handhold and pull ourselves towards a brighter future. We make our way in this world. Believe me when I tell you that most of the people in this world are good people with good intent, and that we as runners and endurance athletes are among the best. There are a random few evil people, but they are few, and we don't plan our lives in their intent. Please, my friends, permit me to tell you my story. It's a story about the 2013 Boston Marathon. And it was a hard thing to bring into this world for you. I sat down on the curb and I laid on my back. One of the cops came over and asked me if I needed an ambulance. I said, no, man, I just ran a marathon. I'm kind of tired, but I'm okay. There was an ambulance there. They had a man on the ground and were working on him. He had no visible injury. He wasn't a runner. They loaded him up and took off. We were two or three blocks west of the finish line. I got up and moved over to the wall with the chain-link fence that looks down over the mass pike. It was starting to get cold. There was a sea breeze coming off the harbor, and the late afternoon sun couldn't compete. All I had were my shorts and my Team Hoyt technical tee, and they were both still a bit damp from the race. I didn't have a phone or my wallet or anything. It was, it was like a scene out of some archetypal Boston police drama. The two cops manning the barricade had no uniforms, no badges, like they were just plucked from the crowd. They didn't know anything. They just knew we couldn't go past. People were milling around, a mix of runners and bystanders, all looking past the barriers. The one cop was an enormous, muscular Italian dude with a broken nose who seemed plucked from central casting with his tight t-shirt, blue jeans, crew cut, boots, and heavy Boston accent, he alternated yelling at people and saying comforting things to his girlfriend, who was on the curb with me. She was from Boston Central Casting as well, with her big hair, tight miniskirt, and white half-high cowgirl boots. It's all so weird. I just sit and shiver. Another runner, a lady from California, comes over to shiver with me and see if we can figure out something to do, until I can't take it anymore. I see a little burger joint on the other side of the intersection and go over to at least get out of the wind. There are a couple fans in there just back from the Red Sox game and they tell me about the walk-off homer in the ninth. 
and one guy offers me half a cookie. There are two tea workers talking about train schedules, and I have a brainstorm. I ask the lady at the register if they have any big plastic trash bags. She goes off to get me two. She's an immigrant from somewhere in our city of migrants, and she tells me how awful this is to happen to a thing that is supposed to be a celebration. These are excellent, extra-large, clear trash bags. It goes all the way down to my ankles when I tear a head hole. Equipped with my anti-wind gear, I head back out to the curb and give the lady from Cali the other bag. She's very thankful. I ask her if I can use her cell phone. All the charity runners carry cell phones. I leave a long, garbled message on my wife's voicemail that can be summarized as, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm okay. They had stopped us just in front of that little underpass dip right before the turn into Hereford Street, about a half a mile from the finish. They didn't tell us anything else, just, the race is over, you can't go this way. I was so tired from the horrible race I was having, I just wanted to go somewhere and sit down. Moments earlier... On the street, I had heard some woman out on the course say that there had been some explosions, and I knew something was going on. I didn't really care what it was at that point. I was focused, as any marathoner in the last mile, to be done suffering and to sit down somewhere and have a cold beer. I could see the Prue and knew the Marriott was over there somewhere and was trying to circle around the back to it. That's when I ran into the officer and his girlfriend and their hasty barricade. That lady from California and I just sat and waited with nothing else to do and nowhere to go. It wasn't my day on the course. I had gone in with a race plan to try to cling to eight-minute miles until I got to the hills, try not to lose too much time in the hills, and hopefully experience some sort of miracle on the backside of heartbreak that would get me home. It was an outside shot. It all went fairly wrong from the start. I was back in the third wave with the other charity runners this year. It was fairly slow going coming down the hill out of Hoppington Center. In the third wave, there's no sorting by pace, and initially it's a bit of a mix-up as people, many of whom have never run the course before, try to settle in. I ran on the left shoulder so I could avoid the crush and pass people in the grass when I needed to. The crowded start cost me maybe 30 seconds off my pace. I figured I'd make that up and be right on eights by the 5K mats. Less than a mile in, I realized my left shoe was untied. I didn't double knot them when I put them on in the morning. What an idiot. My 15th Boston Marathon and I forget to tie my shoes. I guess I figured I'd be taking them off before the race for stretching or rubbing or something, and I didn't double them up when I put them back on. I never did. I forgot. Now they were untied. There was nothing I could do. I pulled off. Lost another 30 seconds. Tying my shoes. I let my pace ratchet down to 7.30s on the downhills to compensate, and by the time I got to the 5K, I was right on 8-minute miles overall, and I tried to settle in, but I could not. I felt terrible. I pulled over to walk for a minute just before the 5-mile mark. I knew then that my race goals were gone. Now I was doing the other calculations in my head on how I could back it off and have a fun run and enjoy the day. I figured I was in decent shape and maybe could run five minutes and walk a minute and that would be okay. And that was when the back pain started. Like someone was grinding a billy club maliciously right between my shoulder blades. The more I ran, the more it hurt. 
The soreness soon spread to my back muscles and neck, and I was in a lot of pain, and it made running awkward, and that made everything else hurt. I tried different run-walk patterns to see if I could find a cadence that I could handle, but it was all just misery, and I wasn't even at the halfway point. I remembered that I had woken up Thursday or Friday morning with a crick in my back, and I thought I had just slept funny. Thinking back on it now, I remember one of those days, Coach gave me some stretching video where you put the foam roller under your back and roll back and forth. And I remember trying to do the stretch and watch the video at the same time, and I think that must have been when I did something. Charity runners are an interesting lot. They have a wonderful enthusiasm and are celebrating the entire time they're running the marathon. They have their own moving cheering sections that jump into the race and run with them. It's it's really, really good attitude. It's a big celebration. They tend to wear costumes. They have pictures and writing and placards and ribbons hung all over them. They run in packs. They are happy, hopeful, committed people and athletes. They don't like running uphill. Whenever my section of the third wave hit any incline at all, everyone would slow down and I'd be running up their heels. I don't mean to offend anyone, but a good number of the third wave were clueless at water stops. The people in front of me would suddenly realize there was a water table on the side of the road. Like being wakened violently from a walking dream, they'd change direction 90 degrees and lurch across the road in front of you to get to the tables. And once they got a cup in their hand, they'd stop dead. It caused pile-ups and clogging at the tables. I had my bottle with me and was just trying to stay out of the way. And even so, each of those early water stops slowed the flow of the whole race down. The same thing occurred when the third wave denizens realized that they knew someone in the crowd. They reversed direction and headed straight for the spectators. The spectators came out onto the course, like the meeting area at the airport. Everyone did a big group hug, danced around a little, and generally had a swell meetup in the middle of the road. I was a charity runner, too, this year. I was running for Team Hoyt, and I had the Hoyt shirt on, and would get some occasional shots of encouragement. As I suffered along, I, I figured if Dick could do Kona with Ricky, I figured I should at least man up and finish this marathon. At the halfway point, I wanted to leave the race. I was I was struggling, trying to maintain a 30-second, 30 30-second 30 walk run. My back hurt so badly. I was thinking, I'm in so much pain. I'm not even in the hills yet. Why am I doing this? I'm not doing anybody good out here suffering like this. I should get off the course. But I knew I wouldn't. To get off the course, I'd have to go to a med tent and be transported. And I knew that would take hours and hours to get into Boston. It was faster to walk. As I continued to limp along the left shoulder, I did see two other people in those miles being wheeled away on stretchers, having been brought low by Boston's fast start. At the half marathon, Matt, I flipped the marathon photo guy, the bird. I'm not happy about that, but I wasn't having a great day. Why does everyone want to take your picture when you're suffering? I pulled into a med tent around mile 14 to get some lube because the shirt was starting to chafe. And I told the guy about my back and asked him if he could do anything. He rubbed some sort of cream on it, but did nothing. And there was a woman there, sitting on the cot next to me, throwing up Gatorade into a plastic bag. And I got out of there. They were waving ambulances and fire trucks by, and official vehicles were whizzing all around us with their sirens blaring. 
We sat on the curb and shivered, the lady from California and me. A motorcycle cop came up to us in our trash bag dresses and told us they were busing runners down to the common for bag pickup and family meeting. We walked down the road and got on one of the two T-buses filled with dazed runners, and I lost a lady from California. Everyone was talking about the bombs. This was where we started to piece together what was going on. The driver took us over to the common on the other side of the finish line, but this plan seemed to be half executed because when we got there, no one else was there. There was no family and there were no bags, and most of us runners just decided to sit on the bus and stay warm until something happened or someone came to find us. There were three ladies on the bus sitting across from me, runners, all of them, and one was wearing a winter coat with a fur collar, and another was wearing a stylish leather jacket, and the third was wearing a modern-looking white leather jacket, and I asked them incredulously, I said, where'd you get the winter coats? And they said that they had been standing around on Com Ave after the race was stopped, and a lady came out of her apartment with an armful of coats for the runners, and other people came out with trash bags and bottled drinks, and residents were inviting the runners in to use the bathrooms and to get warm. And that's our city. That's our race. Those are our people. I was limping along in Newton with my back screaming pain into my head, walk jogging on the left shoulder trying not to get tackled by drunk spectators. I was doing 30-30s and every time I'd stop to walk they'd get in my face and yell at me. And then when I'd start running again they'd celebrate as if they'd inspired another casualty to carry on. There were people proffering orange slices and hands for slapping but I couldn't slap any hands and that made the little kids sad. Sorry kids. The head of a med tent at mile 18, locked eyes with me and pulled me in, saying he had a massage therapist on staff. I lay on the table, and she was asking me if this hurt or that hurt, and all I could say is, it really all just hurts. I was exhausted. Some other a-hole photographer was trying to get a good shot of me being worked on, and I called him out. I said, really? That's the picture you're going to take? I got up, and I kept going, and the back pain subsided for a couple miles, but I was toast. I was doing the walk jog up Heartbreak Hill with the rest of the walking dead. Heartbreak Hill is where the unwise runners and first-timers realize that they may have gone out too fast in the beginning, and they begin harvesting the rewards of struggle. There's a great crowd on Heartbreak. The kids write all over the road with colored chalk before the race, names and pictures and words of inspiration. Heartbreak Hill is that final barrier before Boston. It's one of the landmarks. It's an inflection point in the race, maybe even a bit of a shrine to this 117-year-old race. I was trudging along the left shoulder when people started yelling, Go Team Hoyt! And I was confused and wondering why all of a sudden I was so popular dragging my carcass up Heartbreak Hill. And I stopped and turned. And about 50 feet behind me was Dick Hoyt, pushing Ricky up the hill with their entourage of five or six other runners. I waited for them, and I said hi, and there was a swarm of people around them, cheering them on. They were focused and enjoying their race in their city. There was a Japanese runner with a full-size camera, taking pictures of everything. He was running around the course, back and forth, celebrating his Boston Marathon with thousands of digital mementos. This race means so much to runners all over the world. 
Dick was walking slowly, so I left them to their thing and kept run walking up to the top of Heartbreak and down the backside. The back pain was coming back, and it was excruciating. I had a mantra going in my head that went something like, It really hurts. It really hurts. Not the most inspiring mantra. I limped along to mile 23 and decided just to walk it in. Three miles. I'll just walk. I was disgusted with myself and miserable, having a nice long self-pity party. I was being passed by 70-year-olds and 80-year-old runners. And I was passed by fat people wheezing. And I was passed by challenged athletes with their guides and ex-soldiers with prosthetics. I was a miserable sack of shit. I was getting cold from the wind coming off the water. I was walking. I was hydrated. I was a little woozy. And I just wanted to get to the hotel and lay down. After sitting on the bus by the common for a while, we started to see people with their bags. I was trying to help the out-of-towners give directions to their families. Tell them you're in front of Cheers, I said. Tell them you're next to the Swan Boats. They struggled to get phone calls through, but were able to send text messages. The network was sketchy and overloaded. Our bus driver still didn't know anything, and we'd figure we'd go out and investigate a little, maybe figure out what was going on. A long column of SWAT and K-9 and bomb squad trucks and vans went by in a convoy with names of towns from all over the state of Massachusetts. A school bus full of men in camouflage parked behind us. I and two other guys from the bus to nowhere heard rumors that they were getting people their bags and started walking back towards Boylston in the finish line. Another photographer was stalking us, getting those shots of the miserable lost runners. They had Boylson blocked off at the public gardens right in front of the Ritz. This is about two blocks after the finish line. We started grabbing anyone carrying a race bag and asking them where and how they got it. And we got mixed messages from the emergency personnel in front of the Ritz, but were able to work our way up a deserted Newberry Street running parallel to the finish on the east side, one block over. When we turned the corner on the Berkeley, we were greeted by a glorious and hopeful sight. Lo and behold, a baggage bus with numbers close to mine, was there, as were some volunteers. I had been wandering around Boston for a couple of hours now in my race gear and a large clear plastic trash bag with no phone or no wallet, and I started pointing frantically to my bib number still on my chest and smiling and entreating the volunteers on the bus to help me get my bag. The, the woman there had a piece of paper with the baggage bus locations, and she said my bus was right around the corner. My bus was located just on the other side of the barricade on Boylston. They wouldn't let me over there, but they were unloading all the bags into carts and pushing them down the other side of Berkeley in piles for people to sort through. I pitched in and helped them unload the cart, repeating my bib number out loud as we sorted through the piles. I thanked them and told them that we were all volunteers today. And then I had it. My bag. I have never been so happy to get my stuff. I limped up Calm Ave and knew I was going to make it to the finish. I walked past the one mile to go sign. Then everyone was stopped and race officials were blocking the road. We were too far back to hear any explosions or to see any of the carnage on Boylston Street. A woman next to me said, do we still get our medal? And I thought, really? That's your first worry right now? If we get a medal? Who gives a crap about the medal? From the suite on the 38th floor of the Marriott, Anthony felt the building shake. 
and saw the plumes of smoke as they waited for our runners to arrive to the club's room. No one knew where I was. My friend Frank finished his twelfth and final marathon just before the blast. Of all the great adventures we've shared now, an arthritic hip was forcing him to stop at twelve Bostons. Not a great way to retire from the thing you love. We saw another of our club members on TV being wheeled away on a cart with their kids in the endlessly looping gory video on the news. They were okay, but they were right there. My clubmate Howard was in the med tent looking for a bag of saline, having just finished a hard race, when they had to move him over to bring in the injured for triage. My other clubmate Frank was working in the med tent instead of running this year. He had a crew of college students as volunteers, and they threw themselves into the chaos and carnage with what they had. These were kids, expecting to see some runners passing out, and instead were on the front line of a war in a mash tent with death and gore and shattered bodies. My friend Mike, from McGilvery Sports, who gave me a charity bib, was working the finish line as he does every year, and he finally checked in this morning. He was in the thick of it and was clearly shaken up. Most of my clubmates, most of the runners I know, were already in when the bombs hit. Just me and maybe one or two other stragglers were still out in the course. I don't think Dave McGilvery got his run in last night. When I got my bag... I pulled out my sweatpants and hoodie to get warm. I stuffed that plastic bag into the struts of a crowd barrier. I turned on my phone to figure out how I could get to the room. It was after 5.30. I'd left Hoppington at just after 10 o'clock in the morning. My phone started going crazy as soon as I turned it on. Frantic text messages and tweets and posts and voice messages, family, work, and far-flung social network, all demanding to know where the hell I was. There were hundreds of incoming messages. It was overloaded. I I sent a couple simple messages to key people and to the world and let them know I was okay, but I I couldn't interact with the hundreds of messages coming at my phone. My phone and the network couldn't keep up. It couldn't refresh, and my battery was draining fast. Ironically, the social media rating site Clout sent me a congratulatory message on Tuesday morning that my score had gone up and I sent them a response that they should probably reconsider the appropriateness of that. All that traffic was people trying to find me. Mixed into all the communication traffic were messages from national news outlets wanting to talk to me. I didn't respond. I'm sure they weren't looking for me specifically. They were just trolling social media for eyewitnesses. I made a call up to the room and found out I could get in the service entrance around the back of the Marriott. The police cordon tape went right up to the side of the door. Everyone was relieved to hear from me, but they had already figured out I was okay based on my 40K split. I was 2K away from the finish line when the bombs went off. I ran into one of the guys from the bus, and he still couldn't get his bag and was trying to get into his hotel to Fairmont, and he had no ID, and he was freezing. So I walked with him to the Fairmont, which at this point was locked down and turned into a command post. And another camera crew was started stalking us. I told him that if he couldn't get in, I'd give him my sweatshirt and my sweatpants, or he could come back with me to the Marriott. 
there was a, a group of officials in the door of the Fairmont telling us it was locked down and part of the crime scene. And I told them they needed to do the right thing. And this guy was freezing and lost and a guest of theirs. So they took him in and I went off to try to get into the Marriott. I was so late to the room that everyone except Leanne and Anthony and the massage therapist had cleared out. But there was that heavenly hot shower and that wonderful sandwich and that cold IPA. And Crystal worked on my back a little before she left, and we told stories, and we watched the horrific news. And my phone rang, and it was my boss looking for me. And I sat down and tried briefly to answer all the urgent messages with a brief, I'm okay. As evening approached, the hotel threw open the restaurant for everyone, for free. But unfortunately, they were understaffed with only the workers who were already on site staying late to help. Most of the night shift couldn't get in. It was a multi-hour wait to get to a table. We had a suite full of food and drinks. And we invited a runner from Seattle, Jeff, and his wife up to have a dinner of cold cuts and potato chips and fruit with us. Jeff was crossing the finish line when the first bomb went off. His wife, Anita, was up against the railing in the crowd right next to the explosion. She wasn't hurt, but the person behind her was, and all around her, people were. I got some more beer from the bar. Jeff brought a bottle of wine, and we had a nice impromptu feast there on the top floor of the Marriott. I drank too much on top of my battered body. I let my wife know I was going to stay over, and we ordered up some cots from housekeeping. In the morning, I rode the empty train west and home. It was a somber ride. Somewhere in all of this, I realized it wasn't about me. This was about my community and the people I care about. I realized that all this outpouring was because the community needed me, needed me to be okay, and I needed to help them be okay. And I was needed, and I had a responsibility. Before I left the room, we talked through how the Groton Road Race would respond and early Tuesday morning I sent out a message from the race that we were all okay and we would carry on, that I was working with the police and the medical teams to make sure everyone in our race would be safe. I realized that I had a responsibility to tell you this story, this story that causes me to break down as I write it and read it. I realize that now, more than ever, this avatar needs to lead and to set an example of what can be. I know I'm traumatized, and I know some of you are too, and I don't quite know how to deal with it. But even as this story changes me and changes us, we're all moving forward together. And I'll always be out there with you. This story doesn't end with grief or retribution or heroics. This story ends where our story continues. As we, in the endurance sports community, in the running world, and in the family of the Boston Marathon, keep doing what we've always done. We are a shining example to the world of what can be done by strong, focused, and committed people. I wore my 1999 Boston Marathon jacket 
to work with me today and hung it in the front window of my office. That proud, stark unicorn is a pregnant flag of meaning to me. And I remember my first Boston Marathon almost two decades ago now, and it damn near killed me. But it changed me. It made me stronger than I've ever been. And when I crossed that finish line for the first time, I joined a family of courageous and resilient people. And this is a story about the uncrushable spirit of my community and our family. And that's where the story began. And that's where, and that's where it will continue. My love and my thoughts are with you all. And I'll see you out there. Ladies and gentlemen, please join together and sing loudly with Rene Rancourt as he performs tonight's national anthem. Representing all of Boston's first responders, please welcome the Boston Fire Department Honor Guard to present tonight's colors. What's so proud? 